Taking out the medicine, I'm on a pavement Thinking about the government The man in a trench coat, bad job laid off Says he's got a bad cough, wants to get it paid off Look out, kid, it's something you did God knows when, but you're doing it again You better duck down the alleyway Looking for a new friend The man in a coonskin cap in a pig pen Wants $11 bills, you only got 10 Hello, and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 137, when we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the guest year of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on ChrisandReggie.com and subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by hanging out on the stoop of a brownstone building and absorbing the hip vibrations of the urban environment. The word on the street. <laughs> you know, that, that actually makes Oscar the Grouch the most uh, hip, urbane character. He's the most with it character, exactly. yeah, for sure. <laughs> so today I think we may be doing the rarest comic we've ever done, quite possibly. I, I th- uh, Yeah, this one gives gymnastics a run for its money, uh, apparently. Yeah. It really does. This one is, is should, might be tough to find. It is Street Poet Ray ni- uh, from 1990, number one from 1990. Uh, published by Marvel Comics, this is uh, titled "The Word from the Street," a collection of. Uh, we think these are technically poems, right? I think so. Yeah, I think, I think quali- so. We I think, play, play they, fast and loose with the definition. Yeah. They, they qualify in the broadest definition. Uh, the street players include writer, creator Michael Redmond, illustrator, translator Junko Hosizawa. So. What what are we translating from? I don't know. Probably street lingo, and I guess uh, maybe hmm. in, into Japanese. I'm not sure. <laughs> and uh, back again. <laughs> <laughs> executive producer D- Douglas Foxworthy, assistant to Mr. Redmond, Laura Galina. Editor in chief was Tom DeFalco, and the cover price two dollars and ninety five cents USD, three dollars and fifty cents Canada. And this is th- almost 30 years ago. It was a $3 comic. Or a $3 sort of prestige format comic. Yeah, I just, I, I almost wish we could go back and, you know, talk about hitting the street and talk to people who saw this thing and, and wondered <laughs> what is happening and what am I supposed to do here? Uh, mm-hmm. So, Michael Joseph Redmond, uh, he's rather the enigma. There's precious little about this man on the internet. In fact, outside of Street Poet Ray, he's only part of one other comic book, and that, of course, assumes we're considering Street Poet Ray to be an actual comic book at all. And I, I think it, I think it does fall under that definition, but you certainly could argue the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Street Poet Ray began its life with a one-shot released by Blackthorn Publishing with a spring 1989 cover date and a two-dollar cover price. This edition lists Redman as both the writer and artist. So, for all we know. It's the same collection of poems we're about to recite, but with different art. Maybe, maybe. Who knows? We couldn't uh, find I, it. <laughs> I got I, You know, I, my, my impression of Mr. Redmond though is he's quite the prolific poet. So it wouldn't surprise me if he had a stash of Somewhere. unpublished stuff he was able to pull out whenever he needed to. Uh, from here, Michael would release four prestige format street poet Ray collections via Marvel Comics, all cover dated 1990. For his next work, we'd have to jump ahead to 1996 when he and writer Rafael Nieves put out the Romancer one-shot. This was December 1996, cover date through Moonstone Books. Moonstonebooks.com describes the sold-out Romancer as a dark, brooding, introspective tale of love, blurring reality with fantasy. Mature readers. Mm, and and, it, and it, like you said, it is sold out. So uh, we weren't able to get our hands on Can't that one either. If you, if you have it, 
give me give us a contact us maybe we'll you know put this on the show <laughs> maybe uh we'll jump across the uh across the pacific and across the uh the table to junko hosazawa uh now for this uh, person here, there might actually be less information available. Uh, now, the only credits that we could find for them are the four Street Poet Ray collections. Uh, worth noting, however, there is a fairly prolific Tokyo-based graphic artist named Junko Hoshizawa, with an H. Uh, the, the one we have here credited does not have the H. Right. But we can't confirm that they are one and the same, and we wouldn't want to assume either way, but uh, I, I, you I, never know. I think you might have picked up an interesting lead there, that if we uh, you know, had the wherewithal, we could pursue it, maybe figure it out, but who knows, you know. Yes, if we if we were more uh, prolific, or not prolific, uh, if we were more with it, with the uh, Japanese language, we might be able to traverse this, Right. but uh, Google Translate isn't always the no. best tool, especially with, uh, with Japanese. No. Uh, now, this is only two-thirds of our cast here. Just who the hell is Street Poet Ray? Well, we do have uh, we do have something about him on the inside front cover of this collection. Hi, I'd like to introduce you to somebody I've known for quite some time. His name is Street Poet Ray, a hip-hop, pavement-pounding sage of the sidewalks who's seen the best and worst life has to offer. A victim of the emotions that rage within him, Ray calls him the way he sees him. Pulling no punches, giving no quarter. His first collection of works, illustrated by artist Junko Hosizawa, is entitled A Word from the Street, an eclectic view of the world around us, combining Ray's love of haiku poetry with his passion for Ray-styled prose, a pairing he likes to refer to as rap slash haiku. And uh, since, as far as we know, there's no such thing as Ray-styled prose, we're going to assume that this is a typo, and what Mr. Redmond meant to say was rap-styled prose. Maybe. I <laughs> I got to say, it really could go either way, Chris. It could go either way. But yeah, it probably was rap-styled prose. Uh, it goes on, I think you'll find his strips provocative, insightful, and in many areas thought-provoking, which should please Ray immensely, because in all the time I've known him, he's never been one to shy away from controversy. Whoever said anything about controversy? Yeah, well, where is this going? Hold on a second. I, yeah, this is escalating uh, far more quickly than the uh, than the book would l- allow us to know. Yeah. Uh, now, this, uh, this missive on the inside front cover is signed... Michael Redmond, creator slash friend... Street Poet Ray. So, uh, is Ray a real guy or not? I Either that or Redmond is his father. That, that's he created the way him, I yeah. can see that going. Uh, but yeah, I guess, yeah, who knows? But uh, P.S., hmm. Ray likes to tune into feedback. So if you have some, write up, uh, write word up. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so if you have some, write colon word up. P.O. Box, yada, 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 La Jolla, California, yada, 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 yada. Yes, and it's worth noting, if uh, you haven't picked it up on this yet, Street Poet Ray is a very similar phonetically to street poetry. Exactly. Or if, uh, especially if you say it in Los Angeles style, Street Poet Trey, you know? Like Barry. There you go. <laughs> and I've had this book in my collection for like 15, 20 years now, and I've never picked up on it until just now. So <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> now... We go into the book proper here. Street Poetry, number one. And uh, the first poem, we're going to be reciting a lot of poems here. Yes. Uh, now, what we see here, all these pages are four panels. Uh, some are actually reflecting what the captions are saying. Some are just random as all get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, this this four-panel 
rap haiku here, we see the red Cro- we see some Red Cross volunteers and workers rushing toward a building a burning building to save its inhabitants. And the poem reads, "Bold Red Cross leads the way down into depths of doomsday, restoring people's hope with supplies to help them cope." Uh, I mean, I, I that that's a pretty good thing. I I'd feel pretty bad poking fun at this one. I gotta be honest with you. Yeah, I, I kind of hate that it starts with this one because we it, it's kind of like flat. We can't make fun of this one. Um, uh, we got to say, though, that worth noting that this entire collection of rap haikus is dedicated to the Red Cross. Yeah, which is uh, a nice a token. Good thing. Yeah. Uh, Redmond writes a few paragraphs, all in caps, about everything that the Red Cross does for people around the world. It's a nice little nod, but, dude, it would have been much more readable if not for the caps lock. You can't understand any of it. It just looks like he's yelling, basically, yeah. this whole thing. <laughs> uh, but that's okay. You know, the, the, the sentiment is there, and that's what matters. Yeah. Poem number two, Street Poet Ray, sorry, Street Poet Ray, who is lo- drawn to look kind of like a manga version of Keith Hernandez, meets an Asian fellow in the park. And the fellow gifts him a book of haiku. This is the haiku of Basho, which Ray uses to create his latest rap. Take haiku haiku into streets and see how two cultures meet. Verse of old finds new life in the grasp of urban strife. Yes, and the uh, rap haiku that Ray is is just influenced to write from this uh, book is, I'm street poet Ray, and the things that I say are what comes to mind on my subject, mankind. What the hell? Right? What? I, I... is that it? I, I, okay. Uh, so so I'm guessing this was written in English, translated to street, translated to Japanese, then translated back to English? Back to English, exactly. That's why it's Maybe? Really a, little, a little muddy for you. Uh, Maybe a little pig Latin in there? I don't know. <laughs> uh, so what is this haiku of Basho, you might be asking, and uh, we'll explain. Matsuo Basho was born in Uego, Iga, Japan in 1644. Now, during his childhood, he was the servant of Toto Yoshitada, a Japanese noble who taught him to use the haiku style when writing poems. Now, the traditional haiku style contains three parts, two images, and a juxtaposing final line. Uh, Basho authored what many consider to be the best-known haiku of Japanese literature, and it's something called Old Pond. And it goes, Old Pond, a frog leaps in, what is sound? So, not exactly the uh, three five three style of haiku that many of us are accustomed to that we had to write in our uh, school days. Uh, but that fixed form English haiku is often referred to as a loon. So that's not really the only haiku. I think there are other syllabic incarnations, sure. a four seven four, something like that. It seemed like this could be a uh, like a real deep rabbit hole to go into, yeah. where uh, there are just so many different variations uh, regionally, uh, culturally. It's 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 a deep subject. Not to mention that that poem is translated, so who knows? So who knows what the original syllabic syllables were? We're going to assume that he did it correctly. Yeah, whatever, of whatever it was, Basho did the right thing. Uh, <laughs> now, poem number three has street poet Ray, who looks like he either has stripes shaven to the side of his hair. Or maybe just a wacky hairline. He's reading poetry in rain and sunshine. And that's all of the action that we see. And then the poem uh, that's read is Browning Keats, Robert Frost. Spoke of things both found and lost. Poets all each unique. With pens poised at at life's oblique. 
So he's talking about three poets here in the beginning. First one is Robert Browning, born May 17th, May 7th, 1812, died on December 12th, 1889. He was an English poet and playwright considered among the foremost of Victorian poets. Uh, the, t- the term Victorian, as it pertains to literature, refers to a work having been created during the reign of Queen Victoria, which is to say between the years of 1837 and 1901. Really, the late 19th century is uh, another way to put it. Charles Dickens is often the first cited when discussing Victorian writers. Uh, Browning's earliest works are among the most fondly remembered of his, and his star would fall with his 1840 work, Sordello, consisting of six books, which he'd worked on for seven years. The folks didn't like it, though, of course, it has gained its admirers in the decades since it came out. Certainly. Another one he was talking about was John Keats. He lived from October 31st, 19, I'm sorry, 1775 to February 23rd, 1821. He was an English romantic poet. Now, the term romantic as it pertains to literature could have a couple of different meanings. However, in this case, it refers to the era in which the work was created. Now, the romantic era spanned approximately 1800 to 1850, overlapping somewhat with the Victorian era. Uh, now, these eras could be shows unto themselves, and uh, they probably have several shows if you look hard enough. I bet enough there is, but the, there are uh, some literature shows, sure. Yeah. <laughs> very, very likely. <laughs> now, uh, Keats would pass away from tuberculosis only four years into his career, and his poems were not widely appreciated while he was still alive. Uh, so it's always that way. That's it? pretty much how it is, especially for poets. You know, they don't, sure. You don't hear poets about a whole lot of rich poets, do you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, the last guy, probably most famous to American listeners, uh, Robert Frost, born March 6, 1874, passed away January 29, 1963. He was an American poet, probably the most widely known American poet, though his work would actually first see print in Europe. Uh, this is the guy that wrote The Road Not Taken, if you know that one. Two two roads diverge in a yellow wood, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, so basically, this poem is Ray bragging about who he reads. Right? That's nice. Yeah. Good job, Ray. I see you well. Sure. Ray. He's very deep. So uh, on to poem four. In this one, the action is two roommates struggling to get along. And the uh, poem is roommates, good roommates, bad. Uh, some are joy, some always mad. Want to find one you like? Make damn sure you're not alike. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so we just rhymed <laughs> like with a like. Yeah, I, I, I guess they can't all be winners. I mean, and, I, uh... you get kicked out of the rap battle for that one. You know what I mean? You can't, <laughs> you can't pull that. That's not right. You know what I mean? Uh, also, I, I'd love to know which of these in this scenario is the uh, roommate good and which is the roommate bad. I bet depending <laughs> on which roommate you talk to. You get a different yeah, answer. Yeah, uh, you get a different answer uh, yeah. all of the time for sure. And uh, yeah, Ray's, Ray's rage is just bottling up here. Oh, he's uh, he's getting cooking here. Um, we got poem number five here, and basically the what the panels show us here is that people are different, yo. Wow. Uh, you know, some people pay for things, other people steal. Some people look strong but are weak in actuality, and vice versa. Uh, wow, that's uh, pretty deep, and that is all the examples that are shown. Is that you're not just uh, really truncating <laughs> that; you're literally telling us. About, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's all four panels of that. Yep, and uh, you know we haven't even gotten to the poem yet, so we're going <laughs> to even plumb even deeper. And uh, it goes something like this: Some live right, some live wrong. Some folks weak, some really strong. World revolved, yin and yang, good and bad, each choose their gang. Wow. 
So uh, yeah, um, you know, some people are are different, right? And uh, <laughs> what he's talking, what he's getting to here is the uh, principles of yin and yang, because uh, the the final panel here does have the yin yang in it. Um, now, the principle of yin and yang states that all things exist as quote inseparable and contradictory opposites. This is a fundamental concept which dates from the third century A.D. China. Uh, folks are almost certainly familiar with the yin-yang symbol, which illustrates that both sides attract and complement one another. Uh, the small dots within each, I guess, yin-yang paisley, uh, that illustrates that each side has its core in the element of the other. Yes, and uh, if you've never heard of this, just uh, go down to your local fraternity, check out some of the, the tattoos. tattoos. Yeah. I guarantee someone is wearing one of these on their arm or leg or somewhere. <laughs> their body. Uh, poem number six. Uh, this shows us a presumably single mother struggling to work and make time for her children. Uh, and we assume so because of the poem, mm. which goes, Working mom, heroine, lives her life in discipline, works all day, hurries home, Cannot find minute alone. So this poem is about more and more women were joining the workforce, and actually at this time were in totally in the workforce. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, according to a CDC report, divorce rates in the United States peaked during the 1980s. Which, uh, if you lived during that time, you remember that was a big talk. Yep. Uh, Generation X. We're talking about the actual demographic, not the teen mutant superhero superheroing team this time. Uh, saw the term latchkey kid become more commonplace, referring to children whose parents, guardians worked, and who would either go home to an empty house or have to remain at school into the evening until their parents' workday ended, or parent. Mm. Uh, Workday, if that was the case. Uh, the term is often cited as first used in 1942 on Discussion Club, a Canadian broadcasting company radio program that discussed children of men who went to fight in World War II and women who entered the workforce. The 1984 documentary, To Save Our Children, To Save Our Schools, referred to latchkey kids as, and this is a Day orphans. <laughs> well, maybe maybe a little dramatic. I right? think temporary orphan also would have been good. To, you know, yes. temporary <laughs> waste time orphan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, uh, I remember uh, in the eighties there was a lot of. I know for a fact. Um, different strokes. He he befriended a latchkey kid. Sure. Uh, but but you know some of these like. Uh, Punky Brewster, for example, like she or she was a latchkey kid. She was actually orphaned and like left to live with she that was. old guy. Like this was, I think there was just a rash of uh, kids not being minded in the eighties. Basically, was what was seems going like on. it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, now we uh, jump into uh, poem number seven here, and uh, the gist of this one is that people treat retail workers poorly, and it goes something like this: retail job, hard earned pay, hours drag from start of day. And what's worse, where's respect? Poor cashiers always henpecked. <sighs> so it almost rhymes. Sort um, of. I, I guess it kind of rhymes, yeah. yeah. Um, now, I, I've never really worked in retail. Have, have you worked in retail? Any? Uh, I worked in, uh, I'm going to call it a wholesale. I worked in a beer distributor, which is kind of a wholesale slash retail operation. Like a merchandising type of situation? Or? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> sorry, they handled bulk sales, but they also did... Uh, 
you know, you could go in and buy a six pack or a case or whatever or, or kegs, but I never had to do sales. You know, it was the kind mm -hmm. of place. First of all, it's alcohol, so it's sort so of self people know what they want. Exactly, yeah. kind of sells itself. <laughs> it's uh, destination shopping, and also like if you, if you go in there to get a keg, you know, you know, you're going there for a reason that you can't go to the supermarket for. So I never had to like sell anything, but I definitely worked at the register. Definitely argued with customers. Uh, mm -hmm. But what what about you? I I know you had a, some st in store experience, but not really yeah, as a sales guy. Yeah, because I I had actually well, during my time out of work, I was uh, going door to door looking for work, literally to stores, just trying to get anything. And uh, I finally found some work at a uh, Hobby Lobby that they were building. Oh, and wow. uh, they uh, my interview consisted of, "How's your back?" <laughs> Does it hurt? No, it's fine. Okay, you start Monday. So uh, basically, I was there to help build the store. And uh, as soon as the store was open, they said, okay, we're done with you now. <laughs> oh, that was that. Poor uh, Chris, always henpecked. Always henpecked. <laughs> uh, and then I did uh, I did merchandising for Hasbro. Uh, so I was inside stores. Uh, especially around Christmas time, we would do the loop of like a, like a Walmart, Target, Toys R Us. Uh, yeah. And... You know, uh, it was Christmas time, so people were angry, people were impatient. Um, I couldn't imagine uh, being stuck as a in in like inside a Walmart for eight to ten hours a for day. Hours, I know. Good oh man, I felt so bad because I'm because when people came up to me to ask questions because they thought I worked there because uh -huh. I was putting something on a shelf, I got to say I don't work here, yeah. <laughs> and they had to go find someone else. Whereas. Uh, you know, a, a, a actual a representative, shirt, as we call them. Oh yeah, <laughs> they're uh, they're actually there, and they have to deal with these folks, and uh, and these folks ain't nice. Uh, just like Ray, our man Ray is saying here. Um, now another thing about uh, people who might work with cash, uh, something called a gratuity. Uh, it's nice. also known as a tip. Now, this is a sum of money customarily given by a client or a customer to a service worker in addition to the basic price. Uh, now, tipping is commonly given for service beyond the price, basic price of goods. So, like, you get something delivered or you have your you have a good waiter, you know, someone right. – you, you feel a, a, a service worker went above and beyond or even if they didn't and you're Pay just – for more than the food, tip. you know, you feel like – Yes. You know, yes. Your check is guy. only the start of it. Yeah. Yes. Now, upscale hotels and restaurants sometimes frown on tipping, tipping, and uh, they add a gratuity into the bill. So it's uh, not like they're against tipping; uh, they just make it mandatory. They don't, they don't want to see you. There. They don't want to see the tip. That's all. <laughs> they don't want the cash on the table, and they, and they also want to be able to uh, tax it. Oh yes. Uh, now, in much of the world, <laughs> tipping is not as customary as it is in North America or in in the United States. Yeah. Uh, waiters and delivery persons may get a tip, but you never uh, tip a cab driver or cashier over there. And it's also, I, I don't have much worldly experience, but I guess uh, service workers, waiters make a, they, they don't have to make the minimum wage here. No, that's, that's uh, very Because true. it's assumed that they're going to be, uh, it's going to be counterbalanced by the tipping. We, we, um, we, will, we will say that the economic uh, economics are totally different elsewhere. That's why it, it doesn't, it's not as necessary. But I will say if you try to tip a, a cab driver in, say, London, they look at you like you got nine heads. They don't know what, what what's going wow. on. That's crazy. Yeah. 
But that's not the case in America because, uh, you know, here, uh, you know, the tip cup has become a presence on nearly every retail counter. It's, uh, yeah, it's a fact of life now. And I mean, every reads from the smallest Dunkin' Donuts or, you know, chain <laughs> stores or like, you know, tiny little mom and pop, they all have that tip cup. And sometimes sure. it, that becomes like an art in itself, Chris. Have you noticed? Sometimes they really adorn the hell out of it. You know what I mean? They got sparkles yep. on it, stars. <laughs> they, they put the flare on it. You yeah. know, they really, they really want to draw. <laughs> Somebody's going to do a uh, neon, and that'll be the next level. Oh, yeah. Uh, Now let's go on to the more poetry. Poem number eight. This one is about dentists are sadists, yo. The poem is, drill strikes nerve up near gum. Too late now, nowhere to run. Dentist smiles, moves in close, looking like Grim Reaper ghost. Uh, Dentophobia, which is the fear of dentists, appears in both children and adults, affecting 75% of the adult global population. This might be caused or caused by the light in which dentists are portrayed on television or in movies or in rap haiku comic books. We're not sure. Uh, Although a lot of that, you know, is fallout from a time when dentistry was just a much more painful operation. Our uh, really our, our our grandparents' generation. Uh, had a tough time with the dentist. Let me tell you, <laughs> they did <laughs> not have a rag the over their face. Drop a few bits of ether on there and then get to work. <laughs> yeah, or maybe just just rub some whiskey on the gums and tell the yep. to hold on to a stick real tight. You know that was it. Uh, poem number nine. Street poet Ray tries to sleep, but keeps having bad dreams. Man, uh, must have been that peyote pizza he pulled out of the dumpster. I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, scary dreams, hairy dreams. Every night they come, it seems. Some make sense, some real weird. Some real short, some last for years. <laughs> Close. <laughs> well, all throughout this rap haiku, Ray is haunted by a grim reapery type skeleton that keeps sneaking into his room. Uh, I know they're supposed to look scary, but they really are kind of adorable when you get down they to They are. It. Yeah. They are. That manga style here is just, it's a very loose manga style, very minimalist. It is, I uh, would yeah. say. And it's, uh, it's uh, these are adorable Grim Reapers here. But, uh, you know, thinking about this, Ray might just have nightmare disorder because uh, symptoms include vivid, real feeling and upsetting dreams, which, check, we sure. got that. Uh, dreams are usually related to survival, and considering, you know, these are Grim Reapers... Check, Check on that, yeah. <laughs> now, the dream causes you to wake up. Ray does wake up. So Check. Check again. <laughs> uh, you wake up sweaty with a pounding heartbeat. And, yeah, I'm uh, not, not going to go that one. Sorry. Not gonna we're not going to touch him, no. are we? No. Um, and the nightmares happen frequently. So, dude said it himself. Some of these last for years. So that's a, that's a it checks out. I'll tell you what. I think we just diagnosed yeah. nightmare disorder in uh, in Street Poet Ray. Good job. Um, yeah, but uh, let's move on to a another thing that you might be able to diagnose here. Uh, this is poem number ten, and the story here is that one night stands could lead to AIDS. So basically, learn about the one you're with before uh, doing it. Okay. And uh, the poem goes: One night stand, quite a thrill. But know this, it might kill. Try instead a different tack. Share some time before the rack. The the rack? A torture device, maybe? Is that, is that, what, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> uh, you know, we could talk quite a while 
uh, for quite a while about the AIDS pandemic, the rising fear it instilled in several generations of people, the fact that it made it impossible for a young Reggie to, you know, have any uh, relations with teenage <laughs> girls at, at this exact time. But let's keep it a bit lighter and talk about Jermaine Stewart's 1986 single, We Don't Have to Take Our Clothes Off. Uh, which actually has a lot in common with this here rap haiku and sounds a lot better than what I just sang. <laughs> uh, the song was written by Naranda Michael Walden and Preston Glass and expresses prioritizing emotional love over physical uh, love, if you know what we mean. Uh, many saw this as a reaction to the AIDS pandemic. On September 17, 1985, President Ronald Reagan would mention AIDS publicly for the first time. He called it a top priority. On October 2nd, Congress would allocate $190 million into AIDS research. And that's just shy of a half a billion dollars in today's money, so not a small amount. No. Now, saith Germain in 1988, he says, I think it makes a lot of people's minds open up a bit. We didn't only want to talk about clothes, we wanted to extend that. We wanted to use the song as a theme to be able to say you don't have to do all the negative things that society forces on you. You don't have to drink a drive. Hey, 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 we'll get to that one. Don't go skipping ahead now, Jermaine. Come on, you're ruining it for us, Jermaine. Uh, he continues and says, you don't have to take drugs early. Uh, take drugs early? I early? Is there a proper time? Is there a is there timing? A, I didn't realize that. Is okay. there decorum you need to, uh, you need to exit? I don't know. Uh, next, uh, next bit from a Germania says, the girls don't have to get pregnant early, so the close bit was just to get people's attention, which it did, and I'm glad it was a positive message. Well, gee, thanks for all that, Jermaine. That was nice yeah. of you. Now, it's worth noting that the song is known in the U.K. as We Don't Have To dot dot dot. Oh, gotta keep the song off the nasties list. Is there an audio nasties list, do you think? Probably. I bet there is. Gotta be, right? Yeah. Uh, Poem number 11. This one is about hospital bills. They suck, yo. Mm -hmm. And the poem reads, hospitals cold as ice. Getting well sure has its price. Doctor came to shake your hand. Time he spent to cost you a grand. Now, the Health Maintenance Organization, HMO Act of uh, 1973, is a federal law enacted on December 29th of that same year. Many saw this as the government promoting health care as a business. From 1983 to 1985, the number of national HMO firms would double. And by 1986, around 60% of these plans were for profit. Prices continued to rise for health care in the United States, Based, it on, based on several different factors, including longer life expectancy and changes in lifestyle and behaviors of many Americans, and weird, spurious pricing for drugs sometimes. You, ever, you, oh, you read about that? Like, what the, you know? <laughs> no, your insulin is now uh, triple the price today. Anyway. Yes, and it's only because you need it to live. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's pretty much a closed, it's like the direct market for medicine right there. <laughs> sure uh, and, of course, the uh, changing lifestyles of street poet Ray who was mm. stuck paying out the backside for a visit to the hospital. Poor guy. Girl. Mm -mm, mm -mm. <laughs> I remember in a it was right after I uh, I lost my last real job. I uh, had a kidney stone and wow. put off going into the hospital because I didn't know what it was. It was just a very intense pain that inhibited me. I was on the floor most of the time and uh, the wife finally dragged me into the hospital mm -hmm. and uh, it was a I was in there for probably about three or four hours. The doctor came in for literally under a minute, mm -hmm. 
And just like uh, our man Ray says here, <laughs> you charge the grand for it. It's unbelievable. Uh, I mean, and the thing is, when you talk to people in other countries, it's like it's like another language. I, this, it's I don't know. You know, I don't, I'm not trying to uh, <laughs> take a position. Yeah, street poet Ray's uh, poetry to it, but it, it's it is very weird. But actually, we we've had uh, our own discussions about it, and there's a whole mishigasa problems that stem from. Uh, the very core of it. You can't, you know, to blame a doctor or anyone. It's, it's Certain. Certain much way. bigger than that. But anyway. Absolutely. But let's hop into poem number 12. And basically the gist of this is that people tend to let themselves go after getting married. Um, uh, and the poem goes, choose a mate, tie the knot. Try your best for Camelot. But don't let Prince turn to frog. Don't let Queen go to the dogs. I mean, he's 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 got us there pretty much, you know. Yeah. Next. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wasn't much to when when my wife got to me and now, now anyway, but uh. Now I'm twice as much. <laughs> poem number thirteen. <laughs> Be kind to the follically challenged. Uh, this one is bald people sensitive without hair. Life tentative. Cut them break. Stop the jokes. Waste tasteless words. Hurt and provoke. Uh, doesn't he realize that ever since 1976 Being bald is basically a choice Because that's the year that Cy Sperling founded Became president and was also a client Of the hair club for men ah. Long Island based uh, business if you, if you were aware mm -hmm. His business would grow Pun always intended Via word of mouth until 1982 When he'd start airing those television commercials That many of us know so well Definitely Actually, that was, those were nationwide, I think right? That He was using so. cable at so. that time To get all over the place uh, Within the first month that those ads aired The hair club would receive 10,000 calls Keep in mind, though These statistics come from hairclub.com So Maybe we'll maybe we a grade or two of salt when we take those. Maybe. <laughs> now, in 1995, the hair club would go unisex, so uh, men and women could all get their uh, could all get their treatment here. And uh, by the year 2000, Cy sells out to the Regis Corporation, and uh, that's where we're going to put a pin in it because without Cy, what's the point? Pretty much, he's the he's the everything. But do you know that's the Regis Philbin? Is that he's related to him? <laughs> if only. Right? I would lie. I'm going to say it is just because I want it to be that way. I think so. I think that'd be fantastic. Um, now, poem number 14. Uh, Ray visits the elderly and, and deduces that getting old sucks. Uh, though uh, a little bit here, it does kind of beat the alternative, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, now, the story is, or the poem is, Old folks smile, special sight. Let me know they still all right. Hate to see smile fade. Twilight years should be prepaid. Now, according to the Population Bulletin, Volume 35, Number 4, from November 1980, people aged 65 and up were the fastest-growing group in the United States. Now, this could be due to the fact that there were many strides in medical technology that were keeping people alive longer. Or did they just want to stick around long enough to watch Matlock and Murder, She Wrote, which I think might help my grandmother live for another 10 years. I think that'll do it, yeah. Um, so I figure maybe Street Poet Ray should have just handed one of these faded, smiled oldsters the clicker, and they'd, uh, they'd have been fine. Let me tell you something. When my grandmother got her first remote control television... Mm. You, you would have thought you handed her the sword of Excalibur. She was, <laughs> it was, it was mind blowing that she didn't have to get up to change it, and she still had five channels, mind you. But uh, anyway, uh, poem fifteen, plight of the homeless, and how difficult it is to climb out of that. 
Homeless people, paper shack, carry world upon their back. Some walk by past our hope, others reach end of rope. From a piece written by Martha R. Burt of the Urban Institute for Housing Policy Debate, Volume 2, Issue 3, during the recession of 1981 to 1982, homelessness would surface as a public concern. Reasons posited for the rise in homelessness during a time when unemployment was dropping and the economy was stabilizing and growing were housing affordability, which uh, some prices were rising while income was remaining the same. Sounds familiar. Don't, don't a little you think? bit. Uh, little changes bit. to the structure of the job market. Also familiar. A little familiar. Public program <laughs> benefits to those with disabilities. All right. Change in family dynamic. People getting married later. Or not at all. I'm, how does that? Anyway. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, people living longer, which is a big, which actually is a big problem. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> what was that? Old people smiles fade. Oh, <laughs> sorry, old people. <laughs> I think Matt Locke is on for about a four-hour block today, yeah. so it's okay. Uh, now, Bert's study would look at 182 cities and it would track their level of homelessness throughout the 1980s. It was a, a progressive uh, experiment or a study. Uh, now, using a confluence of variables, including things like how many shelter beds were used, uh, also some national data about joblessness, ages, uh, all that kind of stuff here. Uh, that we're not going to go too deep into, but her findings were that homelessness rates tripled from 1981 to 1989, which is probably when this rap haiku was written. Right. And uh, this went from five in every 10,000 people being homeless to 15 in every 10,000 people being homeless, which when you look at those numbers doesn't sound like a lot, but it is pretty staggering that it did jump that much. That's a huge jump. And then when you expand sure. that into, you know, 250 60 million people. Million people. You have quite it's a, you have quite a large number of people there. It's its own population at that point. Sure. And uh, also in 1989, not only did Ray write a rap haiku, Phil Collins would release an album called Dot 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 But Seriously, which featured the song Another Day in Paradise as its first single. Now, this song implores listeners to not to turn a blind eye to homelessness. Yeah, I think, do you think that eclipsed this comic book? You think that's why this maybe this book didn't get the shine? You know, when I, when I did the research here, I never heard of Phil Collins. The first time I ever heard of Phil Collins. You were like, oh, who's this guy? Oh, wow. I, I thought maybe he was, you know, trying to take a little bit of uh, Michael Redmond's steam here. A little but, bit, uh... but uh, <laughs> uh, this song was widely criticized in the English press at release, who found Collins unqualified to opine on the bore. Uh, Singer-songwriter Billy Bragg would say, Phil Collins might write a song about the homeless, but if he doesn't have the action to go with it, he's just exploiting that for a subject. So if you're going to write about the homeless, you have to be homeless. Or, or you know, uh, maybe not spend uh, the money on the on the Concord to uh, yeah, that, that, make it that to might, concert. You know, he did have a point day. there, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Next one, uh, poem number 16. This is uh, Ray going environmental, and uh, it goes... Ozone holes, toxic waste, life on Earth, a big disgrace. Time to put firm foot down and raise hopes up off the ground. All right. And uh, one of the things growing up that we heard a lot about was the hole in the ozone layer. Yep. And uh, this was discovered by a British uh, Antarctic survey scientist named Farman, Gardner, and Shanklin, and they discovered this in 1985. Uh, the first time it was reported was in Nature, a British scientific journal that very same year. It would become a major talking point during the latter half of the decade and beyond, uh, both in science circles, political circles, For anywhere sure. you could uh, squeeze this in. It was squeezed in. 
Now, what is the ozone layer exactly? Uh, well, it lies somewhere between 9.3 and 18.6 miles above the surface of the Earth, and it acts as a blanket of ozone, or O3, blocking out much of the Earth, uh, much of the sun's higher frequency ultraviolet rays. And uh, those are the things that you, you, t- you typically want to avoid, especially yeah. if you have a uh, family history of skin cancer. Um, also, you want to avoid them if you have eyes, because uh, UVs can cause cataracts as well. When, if you have sunglasses, make sure you get polarized lenses, folks. Pay the mm. money. Do it. Get the polarized lenses. Otherwise, Otherwise you're literally you're just no putting good. nothing in front of your eyes. You're, you're doing nothing. <laughs> all it is is a fashion statement. <laughs> you just, you just tinted <laughs> your eyes is all that happened. Uh, ozone is unstable and can be rather easily broken up by trace elements such as CFCs or chlorofluorocarbons. These are chemicals that, as the name suggests, contain atoms of carbon, chlorine, and fluorine. I love when titles are like that. You can, you know, figure out what's going on. what it is on the tin, yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, These chemical compounds were considered safe when they were created in the 1930s because they were non-toxic and non-flammable compared to other means of refrigeration and spray can filler. And so they grew in popularity and use. In the years since learning about this, many steps were taken to curb CFCs, and it has worked. Uh, they also come from broken down styrofoam, uh, mm-hmm. and so and the people have done no, no away with. I mean, yeah. that that used to be everything was in styrofoam forty years ago, thirty years oh, ago, yeah. and now it's much less. Uh, the hole has been repairing itself ever ever since. And some scientists predict that by the year 2080, global ozone will return to 1950s levels. So that'll be nice, but we have other problems, too. Anyway. A few, a few. uh, Poem number 17, Real Life Always Catches Up With You, is the uh, moral of this one. Here in this one, a busy man takes a much-needed day off from work to go fishing, only to return to a whole lot of bills. And the poem is... Live each day, some will say, like the last to come your way. Live like that, one thing sure, be prepared to spend life poor. Which mm. I gotta say, Chris, for some of my friends, they have totally embraced that. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the new They're like, all right, I'll be poor then. That's fine. <laughs> uh, now, work-life balance is the state of equilibrium and with demands of personal life, professional life, and family life are equal. Uh, The term work-life balance is recent in origin as it was first used in the U.K. and U.S. in the late 1970s and 1980s, respectively. Studies from the London Hazard Center indicate that work today is more intense than it was a decade ago, creating the need for a balance. Being overworked, long working hours, and an extreme work environment has proven to affect the overall physical and psychological health of employees and would deteriorate their family life. Uh, Now, there are three moderators that are correlated with work-life imbalance, them being gender, time spent at work, and family characteristics. Many companies offer flexible hours uh, with less flexible benefits, so it's a balancing <laughs> act here, uh, and expanded maternity leave for women and men in order to address this imbalance. According to a new study by Harvard and McGill uh, University researchers, however, the United States lags far behind nearly all wealthy countries when it comes to family-oriented workplace policies such as maternity leave, paid sick days, and support for breastfeeding. So uh, once again, we are... In the back. We are the weirdos. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> we'll jump to poem number 18 here. This is uh, the, the moral of this one is basically you want to honor the veterans and those who have died for the country. Sure. Uh, now, the poem goes, burn the flag, betray soul of nation that paid a toll. 
with lives of those who fought for freedoms we give no thought. Interesting. I mean, this is this was a hot-button issue at the time this poem sure was, was written as well. Uh, in 1984, a man named Gregory Lee Johnson burned an American flag outside the 1984 Republican National Convention. He did so to protest Ronald Reagan's policies. He was arrested, charged with desecrating a venerated object. He was tried and convicted, but he appealed to the Supreme Court, arguing that his actions were symbolic speech, and as such, should be protected under the First Amendment. And the Supreme Court saw it his way. It is stated that freedom of speech protects actions that society may find very offensive, but society's outrage alone is not justification for suppressing free speech. So mm-hmm. if it's part if it's part of your statement, folks, you may it's covered flag yeah. uh, without being arrested. So that's nice. Anyway, uh, sure. poem nineteen: Teachers don't make no money, and this is something you know about, Chris. Uh, I do. Uh, the poem is Teachers teach, students learn Quite a task with what they earn Contracts stink hours long Time we change this glaring wrong mm-hmm. Now, formal education occurs in a structured environment Whose explicit purpose is teaching students Usually it takes place in a school environment With classrooms of multiple students learning together With a trained and certified teacher of that subject Now, for a long time in Western history, churches, and specifically the Catholic Church, were the stewards of education for upper and lower classes. The Renaissance in Europe ushered a new age of scientific and intellectual inquiry, and around the year 1450, Johannes Gutenberg developed a printing press, which would allow works of literature to spread more quickly. So uh, you actually had individual editions of uh, things you can read and study. Um, In most countries today, full-time education, whether at school or otherwise, is compulsory for all children up to a certain age. Due to this, the United Nations has calculated that in the next 30 years, more people will receive formal education than in all of human history thus far. Wow, that's kind of crazy, but it it makes sense Mm -hmm. when you think that for a long time... Most people receive no formal education. So yeah, for sure. For there's sure. a big, there's a big uh, belt, there's a big curve going on there. Uh, in America, teachers were cons- once considered stewards of the town they served. Uh, they'd often receive free room and board, in addition to a stipend to teach all the children in town. And back then, it would have been would have been often in one room simultaneously, regardless of their age difference. They just had to like. Tune out during the kindergarten session. If you're uh, if you're familiar with Little House on the Prairie, that's that how, is yeah, a, that's... Uh, very uh, very good uh, illustration of that. Actually, you know, there, there's a one room schoolhouse on Long Island. Do you ever go to that place in Pawtucket? Uh, I, I don't think so. No, yeah. <laughs> Two little Long Island tidbits here for the show. Uh, <laughs> as towns grew into cities, education split along age groups. Uh, this kind of patronage became. Useless and impossible, and today American teachers are the most underpaid in the developed world, with some full-time teachers making less than $7,000 a year. Yep. In 20, this is 2018 numbers, I was very uh, stunned and a little nauseated. Anyway. That's true. My my, uh, my wife actually was part of a, they did a protest in, yeah. in Arizona here. They, they it's, It started spreading across the country, and we won't go into it or take a position, but uh, yeah, there was a, a pretty big to-do uh, last year. There and, were a bunch uh, of those. Well, it started in West Virginia, yeah. didn't it? And then I want to say so. Yeah, it happened yeah. in Denver. There were there were a bunch of them. It's it's ongoing. I mean, this this is a for sure current events issue uh, in America, and uh, yeah, it's hopefully hopefully a resolution comes that does not <laughs> result in 
education dissipating because that could be a For sure. problem down the line. Absolutely. Anyway, let's go to this. This has become a very politically charged episode, hasn't it? Here, Chris, I, I wasn't. I don't know why I didn't expect this, but you know, it's become. This is very, the word uh, on the street, man. Yeah, that's how it is, man. Street. The street bears all, baby. You know. <laughs> Home twenty, and uh, here's something you hear on the streets all the time, Chris, and that's respect the police. <laughs> I remember that's my favorite rap. Exactly. <laughs> uh, the poem goes, "Damned if I do, damned if don't. Some cops care, while some cops don't. I'll be glad that they're there, uh, but be glad that they're there. Without them, we'd have no prayer." Uh, mm-hmm. I think I think that we we wouldn't have a prayer because I don't think cops actually uh, protect prayer, but. Uh, we thought <laughs> it's a conflict of interest. It's a little, it's a little weird way to put that, but I, I got the idea of street poets, right? It's all right. Uh, we did think this might be a reaction to the Los Angeles riots and the beating of Rodney King, but that happened in 1991, a year after this yeah. was published. So, I yeah, so either Ray is prescient, or uh, this might just be another wisdom of Ray rap haiku. I mean, for, you know, uh, cops were, you know, beating people up before that video came out, so maybe he had no some way. inside information. I don't know. <laughs> No, we uh, we actually have a, a town out here that uh, that pushed the police out. Really? Um, yeah, about a de- about a decade ago, and uh, it didn't work out so well for them. Um, and uh, the police were brought back pretty Oy, quickly. Yikes! Um, now we jump into poem number twenty-one, which uh, we're gonna call Poe versus Ray. All right. And uh, that probably tells you what this one's all about. Uh, baby live, baby die. Abortion, the great divide. Tempers flare, pro and con. No one right if all are wrong. So, do we want to with this? No, one? no, 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 no. Are you sure you don't want to? Maybe yeah, get into. Yeah, no, no. All right, go right on to poem twenty-two. This one is about gang violence, and uh, the poem is: Gangs in streets shoot from cars, stare at world from behind bars, locked into life of waste. Most will die without a trace. Now. Gangs have existed for centuries, often as collections of criminals that would extort and menace people. Just to list a few through the ages, uh, the Order of Assassins, the Damned Crew, Adam the Leper's Gang, Penny Mobs, Indian Thugs, Chinese Triads, Gang Snakehead, the Japanese Yakuza, the Irish Mob, Pancho Villa Villistas, the Dead Rabbits, American Old West Outlaw Gangs, Bowery Boys, Chasers, the Italian Mafia, the Jewish Mafia, and Russian Mafia crime families. Or just a few of the names of gangs hmm. going on. I mean, this, these are all gangs in the sense that we're talking about. Uh, there is also, you know, like railroad gangs or work gangs. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the other, no. the crime gangs. Uh, the 17th century saw London terrorized by a series of organized gangs, some of them known as the Mims, Hectors, Bugles, and the Dead Boys. These gangs often came into conflict with each other, and members dressed in the following way with colored ribbons to distinguish the different factions. Wow. I remember that Duckburg was uh, plagued. Yes, they had a lot. They had a bad game. The Beagle Boys took over. That was the problem. Now, our modern conception of gangs, that's groups of individuals that defend a specific area or a turf, that really began in the Lower East Side in New York City during the 19th century, where successive waves of immigrants concerned uh, established citizens and gave cause for conflict. 
The 1950s saw a tremendous upswing in gang culture in cities around America, but it wasn't until the 1970s that these gangs became heavily armed and, uh, as you might imagine, subsequently more dangerous. Wow, yeah. In uh, 2000, and also uh, put on, you know, in movies. Had movies, in movies made sometimes, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> now, in 2007, there were approximately 785 thousand active street gang members in the United States. This is according to the National Youth Gang Center. Though we don't think uh, that being a gang member is information most would want to volunteer, right? You don't you don't knock I, on someone's door. I ask. would bet that number could probably edge up at least a little bit higher as far as membership, but uh, it's it's plenty high enough for us. Actually, it's a lot of folks. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Uh, poem number 23. The gist of this one is to be patient with the mentally ill. And it goes, crazy man. Well, that's how we're starting it. Yeah, we're, very good. We're, Be patient we're, we're being... with the crazy man. <laughs> <laughs> crazy man babbles on, singing tune to self-made song. Look real close and you'll see a little part of you and me. Or maybe this is Ray projecting. A little bit of definitely uh, street poet Ray in there. Mm -hmm. uh, the, although this is, again, at the time he wrote this, a huge issue. Uh, Hot the early 1980s saw the formation of the National Alliance for Research on Schizophrenia, which sought to raise funds from the private sector in order to support research. Worth noting that schizophrenia isn't interchangeable with multiple personalities, regardless of how it is used a lot of the time. That's definitely... In pop people. culture, yeah. Uh, multiple personalities is something different. If it exists at all, that's a whole other story. Certainly. Uh, in fact, the National Institute of Mental Health, NIM, as in the secret of NIM, makes <laughs> no mention of multiple personalities on a schizophrenia page. Uh, yeah, I mean, Chris, you know this better than me, but the actual symptoms of schizophrenia are totally different. They uh, Way different, they yeah. They have to do with disassociation and making... Uh, mm -hmm. Connections between, you know, mundane things. It's very, very deep, yeah. Yeah. Uh, come 1987, researchers began investigating the intersectionality of mental illness and homelessness, which is another topic that Ray has rapped about. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, this this was big because uh, they, in 1981 or 1980, uh, the federal government shut down a lot of its, a lot of its institutions. Yep. And uh, let loose a lot of mentally ill people onto the streets. So suddenly, a lot of people had to see things they had never seen before. It's true, and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the public perception of us uh, psychotherapy and psychoanalysis had changed around then too. Yes. Uh, not that it was because we we always talk that it's a soft science. So there's not the the results aren't always apparent. And uh, a little movie came out in the '70s called Sybil, and. Right. Uh, that influenced a lot of people to believe they had multiple personalities, and it also, unfortunately, influenced a lot of uh, professionals into maybe guiding some people into thinking they might have something like that, oh, yeah, just so was, they could. Uh, they have the regressive it, hypnosis thing, right? That that whole. Yep. Uh, uh, so they can raise their own star and uh, publish journals, and it's uh, it got pretty ugly, and uh, and uh, psychology as a discipline and as a science was. It, it took was, a hit. It sure did. It, it sure it, did. It also caused a lot of goth girls in my high school to claim to have multiple personalities. <laughs> and that was that was interesting. You know, I was always like, "Oh, you have one of the rarest afflictions in all of medical history." <laughs> and all and all, all three of you have it. That's incredible. <laughs> in all the same school. <laughs> uh, you sure you're not just like having mood swings? All right, never mind. Okay. Uh, <laughs> poem number twenty-four. This is a subject we've talked about on the show before. It's. Cocaine? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
go look at our go listen to our Angel Love series. Understand yeah. what we're talking about that or our episode on that. Uh, the poem reads: Cocaine high, hard to gauge, lock you up in mental cage. When you say you had enough, cocaine high will call your bluff. Mm-hmm. Now, we've talked about cocaine before, uh, even in one of our uh, After Dark episodes, uh, right. and uh, cocaine is a stimulant drug that's derived from the coca plant in South America. Uh, it was initially viewed as a beneficial and mostly harmless medicine, and cocaine was prescribed to those with low energy, and it was used as a local anesthetic, uh, as an added and active ingredient in several products. It was it was around. Yeah. Uh, in the early, eight, I'm sorry, early 20th century, the perception of cocaine changed. Folks now saw it as dangerous and addictive, and uh, like we often do, we turn to the government to make a ruling. Mm-hmm. They did. Several, in a fact. A few rulings, yeah. <laughs> Anytime you ask the government for advice, they are more than happy. <laughs> uh, now, 1906 saw the Pure Food and Drug Act, which required proper labeling of products that contained cocaine, so you knew what you were buying. Right. Uh, in 1914, we saw the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act. This imposed restrictions on dispersal and use of cocaine. And other narcotics, of course. Uh, They made it so it was for non-recreational use only, so only medicinal. And uh, also records of prescribing physicians were scrutinized to ensure legitimate use and not abuse. Uh, We jumped to 1922, where the Narcotic Drugs Import and Export Act happened, and this officially forbade the import of cocaine and products containing cocaine. I just want to say that Pure Food Food and Drug Act, we still—that's the reason we actually have— any ingredients listed Trish at all. Uh, so we, we still are at least reaping some benefits from that, even though it really was established to limit cocaine and opium at the time. <laughs> uh, jumping ahead to the 1970s and 80s, which is where street poet Ray wants us to be, cocaine would return to popularity and would be viewed as a hell of a drug for elites. <laughs> Uh, why even the patron saint of the cosmic treadmill, Chevy Chase, was a wildly prolific user. Uh, by the time he left Saturday Night Live in 1976, it was said that his cocaine use regularly exceeded two grams a day, which is uh, not a small amount. Street value of cocaine would drop moving into the 1980s, which facilitated the more widespread use of it. So what do we do? Back to the government for more uh, oversight. President Ronald Reagan publicly claimed that drugs were America's number one problem. First not, counting, lady, uh, not counting AIDS. No, we, we, that, that came later. That, <laughs> that became the number one problem like two or three years later. Uh, First Lady Nancy Reagan would begin her Just Say No campaign. And in 1986, they passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which enforced stricter mandatory minimum sentencing for drug users and dealers, which is something that is, uh, again, a very... Big topic right now in the news about these uh, old laws and stuff. Certainly. Uh, we jump later into the 80s, and focus kind of shifted from cocaine to crack cocaine. But uh, that might be a story we tell a different time. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll find a comic you, about super crack, and we'll do Maybe. <laughs> and if you do want a little bit more information on the uh, Just Say No campaign, we did a series on the uh, Teen Titans uh, anti-drug oh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, comics. Right. And actually, uh, we did that... Almost exactly two years ago. So, wow. <laughs> because it was coinciding with a certain day on the calendar. We did but, all uh, three of them, right? Wasn't that what it we was? did. We did indeed. Yep. So you can check those out. Available in the archives. Yeah. But for now, poem number twenty-five. The gist of this one is uh, drinking and drive not a good idea. So uh, we're gonna read it here, and it says, "Pop down beer, drive real fast. Think good time is gonna last. Siren wails, light and face." DUI, sure, big disgrace. (laughs) 
Now, if you're familiar with the highways and byways of America here, it seems that these days, every other billboard on the freeway is for a lawyer who can help you get out of your drunken driving charge. Uh, however, back in the early 90s, folks like our man Ray didn't care to have the shame taken out of the car. No. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a choice you can make, so it's a thing. Uh, in, the early in the early 1980s, a pair of organizations would form. We got Students Against Drunk Driving, otherwise known as SAD, uh, S-A-D-D, which today stands for Students Against Destructive Decisions. Now, this was founded in 1981 by Robert Anastas. He's the hockey coach at Wayland High School in Wayland, Massachusetts. He did so after losing two of his players to a drug driving accident. Uh, Sad would draft a contract for life. Though it started in, in 1981 with only 15 members, jumping to 1982, it was a national entity with offices littered all across the United States. Yeah, that contract for life was a huge thing in the 80s to sign that. Oh, yeah. uh, I, think, I, I think they had me sign it, and I want to point out that I was like nine. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah, I was like, sure. okay, I'll sign it. Is this legally binding? I don't, I don't know about that. Anyway, um, <laughs> in 1984, advice columnist Dear Abby and Ann Landers would print a Nastas contract for life. And that same year, CBS aired an after-school special based on a Nastas story. In 1985, President Ronald Reagan met with me, me members of the group in New Jersey. SAD has remained relevant even today. Our current First Lady Melania Trump addressed a national SAD conference in 2018. The other group is, of course, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, or MAD. Founded on September 5th, 1980 by Candace Leitner, a mother in California who lost her 13-year-old daughter, Carrie, because of a drunk driver, uh, in that the hit and drunk driver left the child's body at the scene, which was uh, pretty bad. In 1983, a TV movie would air to tell Leitner's story and spread the word about MED. In 1984, MED was pivotal in enacting federal law in which the National Minimum Drinking Age Act, uh, which punished every state who allowed those under 21 to purchase and publicly possess alcohol. They are still active and relevant to this day, though bring with them a bit more controversy than said, uh, much of that has to do with taxes, which is too boring even for us, and mm. the mission does not affect the mission of the group. So Certainly. The mission statement uh, is still there. And I'll tell you, uh, as a kid, as a little kid, drunk driving was way more prevalent. Uh, even my parents would, would drive drunk a little bit, and they were far from heavy drinkers, you know, sure. but the leaving, leaving from a party. I remember one time, I was pretty young, they were having a fight over who was more too drunk to drive. Uh, or you know, less less drunk, and they're there forced to drive. But it really, it really was one of these things where often a cop, if they pulled you over and you were, they found you were drinking, they might let you go. Uh, yeah, not so anymore. You will not be let go, folks. Certainly not. Do <laughs> not be, test that theory. Yeah, you'll be let go to jail. So don't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Or a uh, tent if you're in Arizona. Is that how they do it over there? We have right. tent city out here. Yeah. All right. Well, that's uh, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Poem number 26. Here we have uh, a claim that tow yards engage in government collusion. Hmm. Hmm. The poem is, tow truck come, remove car, take it to a lot real far. Make me mad when I see parasites do job with glee. I mean, it's. I mean, we gotta we gotta do a little bit of assuming here uh, that yeah. that Ray owns an automobile to begin with. Okay. Um, he might live in it for all we know, but uh, <laughs> possibly it's, it's not outside the realm of possibilities here that Ray just parked illegally, or maybe he was a vagrant and just yeah. remained in a spot for too damn long. Yeah. And uh, maybe his meter expired. You know. Uh, 
I don't know. It just seems kind of like sour grapes to me. I but, get uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of people, they get their car towed and they become uh, civil rights advocates. <laughs> Suddenly, ever see that? They can't believe the indignity being passed <laughs> among them. Uh, you know, we're not saying that it's not true. We, we, there's no evidence that we could find to say that these uh, companies are in collusion with the cops. Um but we've all heard rumors. And that's fine. Yeah, we have definitely heard rumors, but at the same time, I definitely know people who... Uh, <laughs> they pick up arms, yeah. Yeah, they, 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 they had their own problem with their cars, so... Now, the, the tow yard in the poem, because uh, there is a picture of a tow yard, it says, Welcome to America's smoothest scam. Wow. So, uh, he's pissed. Don't ever put that <laughs> sign up on your uh, yard if you're... I mean, really? <laughs> that, that, I'm gonna open up a store and put that in the window. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> rip off, rip off a company. <laughs> now we jump to poem number twenty-seven, and uh, in this one, Ray feels the earth move under his feet, and it goes something like this: six point eight, eight point five. Who will live and who will die? Rumbling death quakes appear, filling world with sounds of fear. Uh, we're guessing that this rap haiku was probably written in response to what was the then very recent 1989 San Francisco earthquake. That occurred on October 17th of that year. San Francisco was hit with a magnitude 6.9 earthquake, lasting around 15 seconds, which killed 67 people, injured over 3,000, and caused over $5 billion in damages. It also interrupted the World Series, which is one hell of a coincidence, pitted both Bay Area teams against one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember that, too. Uh, they being the San Francisco Giants of the National League and the Oakland A's of the American League. And you can find uh, you can find the video of that uh, on on YouTube where oh, yeah? you have uh, yeah, you have uh, the, the the announcers talking and then all of a sudden, like the camera flickers a bit, goes black. And then goes to a uh, goes to like a static shot of a you know we'll be right back sort of thing. It's yeah. it's interesting to see for sure. I didn't I didn't watch it. At the, I just remember it happening and, and thinking. Yeah, same here. Boy, baseball's crazy. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think to myself, boy, earthquakes are crazy, which probably was what I should have taken away from that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, poem number twenty eight is all about a subject I know Chris is likes <laughs> WrestleMania. Uh, and this goes, wrestling shows, lots of laughs, punches shown, thrown by telegra- telegraphs. <laughs> this one doesn't rhyme. <laughs> wrestling shows, yeah, it's messing me up. Wrestling shows, lots of laughs, punches thrown by telegraphy? Sure. But no way enter ring. Ray, not dumb, those punches sting. Yes. Uh, now, for the state of wrestling here, after reaching a peak in popularity in the late 1980s, professional wrestling in the United States was starting to level out a little bit. And this is just before it would take a slide into a very deep down period where the industry would remain until around 1996-1997. Uh, Ray is right, though. Them punches, they stink. Yeah. And there are many times when professional wrestlers are really injured in the ring, and uh, we're going to talk about just a couple of those right here. Uh, we're going to go to October 5th, 1999 where NFL player-turned-pro-wrestler Darren Drozdoff would suffer a devastating neck injury where his opponent, D'Lo Brown, was unable to execute his signature maneuver on him properly. Uh, Drozdoff himself takes the blame for failing to leap into this move, and he also claims that he was wearing too loose a shirt, which hindered his opponent's ability to get more control over the move. And uh, that night, Darren Drozdoff was paralyzed. Yikes. Mm. January 14, 2001, wrestler Sid Vicious attempted to execute a jumping kick from the second rope on his opponent. 
A move that six foot, nine inch, 317 pounder wasn't comfortable, comfortable performing, but he did so anyway. Upon landing with all of his weight in his left leg, he broke his tibia and fibula. This looked quite similar to Joe Theismann's leg break in 1985, and there is video of this available online, but we really don't recommend looking at it. It's no. at least it's really gross. Not not in a full stomach. This is like when you, what you what you think it might be. It's probably it's exact. That, so it might be even worse. Than that, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the last one we're going to discuss here is a uh, SummerSlam 1997. Uh, Owen Hart attempts to deliver a tombstone pile driver on his opponent Steve Austin. Now, a tombstone is usually delivered when the move performer holds the victim upside down, belly to belly, and then drops to their own knees, which gives the impression that they basically just drop the guy on their head. Usually, they're not usually dropped on their head. Uh, in this situation, Owen would sit out. So he didn't land on his knees, he landed on his butt, which uh, put Austin's head a little too close to the mat, and uh, he hit very hard. Uh, he would suffer a broken neck, and he was temporarily paralyzed, and it really... Uh, it really it limited his uh, career. From I can only on. imagine, yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh, we could talk more about Owen's own fate just a few years later, but that was a different kind of in-ring accident. So, yeah, if uh, you're familiar with that, yeah. And of course, this doesn't this this doesn't even talk about the wrestlers who just have destroyed their bodies just oh, lingering wrestling, injuries. you know? Yeah. Oh yeah, for <laughs> it's, sure. It's wild. It is. Absolutely. Uh, poem 29. Now, on this one, Ray moves from Philadelphia to California. And the poem goes like this. On the road, can't turn back. Life in gear with Kerouac. Up ahead, points unknown. Signpost read, you can't go home. Now, in this, uh, the in the four-panel play here, uh, as Ray leaves Philadelphia, he passes a sign that reads, Now leaving Philadelphia, colon, have a pleasant transition. He is greeted in California by a sign reading, Welcome to California, dot, 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 your state of mind. I don't, I don't believe those are the official uh, signs that you see. No? <laughs> Entering no, and leaving I... these states. I don't think so, but maybe <laughs> I'm wrong. Now, he is mentioning uh, Jack Kerouac, who was born Jean-Louis Kerouac on March 12th, 1922. He'd pass October 21st, 1961. He was a novelist and poet. He, along several others, including William S. Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg, pioneered what is referred to as the Beat Generation. And uh, we're going to go deeper into that in a little bit. Mm -hmm. He was raised by French-Canadian parents and only spoke French until the age of six. There were a confluence of religious experiences in his youth that would inform much of his written work. Uh, Jack would attend Columbia University on a football scholarship. However, he'd break his leg during his freshman year. Now, this would lead to him dropping out and falling in with them Beat Generation folks. Oh, yeah. He served in the Merchant Marines, which is uh, during which he'd write his first novel, The Sea is My Brother. This would be published way later, though, in 2011 and was referred to as a lost novel. Uh, during the early 1950s, Kerouac, he hit the road, experiencing much of what would become perhaps his most well-known work and the book, the book Street Poet Ray is referring to, titled On the Road. Written in several small notebooks throughout his cross-country trip, which he'd fill with what he would experience. Uh, Dean, based on Neil Cassidy, another Beat Generation icon, this is a quote from it. Uh, Dean and I were embarked on a journey through post-Whitman America and to find that America and to find the inherent goodness in American man. It was really a story about two Catholic buddies roaming the country in search of God. And we found him. 
The book initially had difficulty finding a publisher as due to its graphic depictions of drug use and sexual behavior. Uh, most feared they could be taken up on obscenity charges. Plus, it's a weird book, you know? It's written in kind it's of hard a to read. stream of consciousness. It's supposed to, people liken it to jazz, but it really is somebody that just isn't into punctuation. Uh, it's, uh, it was originally uh, one of the first manuscripts was like on just like this endless scroll. Yeah, it, it was like end to end, just kind of like yeah. uh, a truly a stream of consciousness writing weird. And I, I believe they actually published it as in the scroll format uh, in the years since, just as a uh, oh really? You know, this is how it was originally done. Oh. I tried reading. I tried reading this years ago, and I couldn't get far into it. I read it. I read it when I was a teenager, and uh, you know, I grokked it or whatever then. But I <laughs> have not looked at it since. Needless to say. Uh, talking about Jack Kerouac could fill his own podcast and likely does somewhere out there. Go find the Kerouac yeah. cast and let us know how it is, please. For sure. Uh, now we go to poem 30, and Ray is going to wrap up this volume with a prayer. So everyone, bow your heads. Bow your heads. And <laughs> jerk them back up when you hear the poem. Uh, <laughs> Hiya, God, what's the word? Life down here has gone absurd. Could you come lend a hand? People jump at your command. Now, the art here, as minimalistic as it is, features a somewhat angry god striking people down with lightning. Uh, wow. Maybe Ray is talking about a potential second coming here? Seems like it, yeah. Maybe. Now, the second coming of Christ is uh, a belief across many different religions and denominations that Jesus Christ would return to Earth to either save it or end it. Really depends on who's doing it. <laughs> and uh, we're not going to explain it either, especially on this Easter Sunday, because uh, there's a lot to it. Yeah. Uh, and it might be better suited to a time where we discuss maybe a more apocalyptic comic, because there are plenty of those out there. There sure are, yeah. <laughs> now, we're going to leave you with this. The next prediction for the second coming of Christ was made by Ronald Wineland. He's of the Church of God. Uh, this, is, this is his congregation. Church of God, comma. Preparing for the Kingdom of God, the COG-PKG. This is an apocalyptic sp uh, splinter of the Worldwide Church of God, or the WCOG. That, that just rolls right off the tongue, Chris. Doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Wow. Doesn't it? <laughs> now, he claims that this second coming will be June 8th, 2019, so a couple months from now. But he also said that World War III would occur between the years of 2008 and 2013, so maybe don't go cashing in your chips. Can you prove yet. that it didn't? You know, I mean, what's wrong mm. uh, <laughs> What's funny is if I got a letter in the mail that had, you know, in all caps, COG hyphen PKG, I think it was COG package. Somebody's packaging like, cogs. Yeah, yeah somebody needed, somebody lose a cog around here? Anyway. <laughs> uh, the inside back cover of this Street Poet Ray number one uh, features the Street Poet Ray Hotline? What? What? <laughs> uh, it says, have you heard the rap of the day from Street Poet Ray? Then call 1-900-860-4729 right now. Uh, any hour of the day, any day of the week, you can pick up your comic book copy of The Word from the Street. Thumb through its pages and listen to Ray rap the story behind the strip. One strip at a time. A different strip every day. But that's not all, because there are four other lines. You're kidding me. I don't know what the... <laughs> there are four other lines you can plug into as well, featuring Ray's music, Ray's fan club and merchandising information, and Ray's what? rap hotline, where you and your friends can leave your own rap of the day. Dude, dude, we gotta start a hotline. I, 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 we gotta get raps of the day. I really gotta get. We gotta get this going because <laughs> this is really amazing. Like, just this. You know, you made this character, and he was like, "I'm going all out. That's it. We're I'm doing, doing it. merchandising. You gotta go. You gotta do it." <laughs> <laughs> no. 
and, and and we looked. We were unable to find any of Ray's music, any of his merchandise, any of his fans, oh. besides ourselves, of course. Um, and in case you were wondering, the Ray Hotline costs $2 for the first minute, $1 each additional. So kids, get your parents' permission Better before you buy And that wraps up. Street Poet Ray. And, wow. Uh, what do you, you think? Chris, that really <laughs> was a very unique experience. Of course, the, 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 the stunner of this book is that it was published by Marvel Comics. Marvel Comics. Uh, you know, if this, if, you, if this had been Eclipse or even something lower, you know, uh, you know, Poet Ray Comics is what I would expect this to come out on or something. <laughs> but no, this, this was prestige. You went into the comic shop, yep. and this was there for purchase. Uh, and there are three more that it, follow this it, that we haven't seen yet. It but, uh, they I mean, you, you've never found one of these in the wild, nope. right? It, I uh, found. The, I have this one. I have the first one. This this but, comic, uh, uh, by the way, uh, stumped my my local comic shop guy. He said he'd never even seen it before. So this could be the rarest. You, I, I would send this off to CGC to get slammed if I were you right away, because <laughs> uh, you never know. This this could become a, a hot button item very very soon. It's crazy, and and you know it's. We're having a lot of fun with it, but I'm so glad it exists, just as the novelty that it is. Uh, Yeah. Just so strange. What gets me is this is, like, right at the time of X-Men, you know, Jim Lee's X-Men number one. Just before, yeah, uh, Todd McFarlane on Spider-Man, yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, It's like the superhero stuff is working great. You know, they have no reason (laughs) to come off of that. But for whatever reason, Tom DeFalco or somebody obviously saw this. And I, I, I get the impression it's a labor of love or oh, it's so earnest. Something, like, yeah, Absolutely. you know what I mean. It's yeah. like it's like, hey, you know, let's, let's let's put out this thing, and it'll resonate. And I bet it resonated with like a dozen people. You know, there's there's one for everybody out there in the world. You Does know, that count us? Chris. Huh? Is that counting us? Is that I counting think that us? Count, that counts us. Okay. So ten others besides us. We can, <laughs> we can all get on the city bus here. and have a convention sometime. It'll be good. <laughs> and remember to call in with those those rap haikus, please. Please, uh, send us all your rap haikus. We will definitely, definitely play them on a future episode. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, now today uh, we're going to wrap up with a, a very brief history of beat poetry and that beat generation that we alluded to a little bit earlier. Uh, we did discuss Jack Kerouac during the recitation portion of the program, and uh, it is rather fitting. In uh, 1948, he would coin the phrase, the Beat Generation. This was during a conversation with John Clellan Holmes to describe a perceived underground and anti-conformist youth movement, primarily in New York's Greenwich Village, San Francisco's North Beach, and Los Angeles's Venice West. Jack and John were philosophizing about the nature of generations, uh, discussing whether or not their generation was a lost generation, to which Kerouac allegedly said, ah, this is nothing but a beat generation. Holmes would go on to publish an article in the New York Times Magazine sometime in late 1952 titled, This is the Beat Generation. Now, the term beat would initially refer to a weariness, a tiredness, and or poverty, uh, i.e. referring to a beaten-down generation. Uh, The term, quote, beat to his socks was said to be coined by poet and writer uh, Herbert Edward Hunk. Hunky? Mm, I think it's Hunky, yeah. Hunky. He lived January 9th, 1915 to August 8th, 1996, and this quote would refer to an image of the total and most despairing image of poverty in the black community. Though this would also, the the beats would come to connote a musical beat and uh, beatific spirituality. These nonconformists would be derisively referred to as beatniks, 
and they would dress differently than the square conformists, though not in the same way as the next generation of hippies. That yeah. was definitely kind of an extension of this, but not the same thing. Uh, though many would advocate personal expression in, induced by drugs and sex. So there were similarities. <laughs> there was overlap. <laughs> uh, they were definitely cleaner, a cleaner folk from what I can tell. <laughs> anyway, uh, beat poets were said to have wanted to liberate poetry from academic preciosity in order to bring it back to the streets. Beat poets would recite their poetry, sometimes accompanied by jazz music in beat strongholds such as the Coexistence Bagel Shop in North Beach, California, a place that, despite the name, didn't actually sell bagels, though <laughs> it was part actual Jewish deli. Uh, in 1957, an AP piece would uh, describe the scene as, in a sweaty, smoky room no bigger than most living rooms, we sat elbow to elbow, the faithful and the curious, hugging our espresso cups, nursing our beer, sipping our wine at tiny tables set on sawdust. And it continued that the walls held signs and hand-printed notes heralding jazz sessions and poetry readings. A big Cub, Ca Cub Scout pennant featuring the words, Be Square, assorted posters with and scrawled questions, commands and legends such as, Juice from a sun-kissed albatross, and Did you dig gig or jig? Uh, also, Have you seen the castrated angel? And Read the Testament from the Underground. Okay. Quite a place. Sure. Um, so now why did they call it a bagel shop despite them never having sold a single bagel? It is said that the idea of the bagel, because it was Jewish, seemed vaguely incendiary, as did the idea of coexistence. Uh, now, the bagel shop, it's very deep. The uh, bagel <laughs> shop would be home to a, a prolific beat-era poet, Bob Kaufman. Uh, Kaufman, born in New Orleans in 1925, to a German-slash-Jewish father and a black-slash-Catholic mother. He was a jazz-inspired street poet. Now, he, uh, he wasn't there all the time, but he would pop in a lot, and his spontaneous poetry readings would cause patrons to actually hang out at the shop just in hopes that he might stop by, which mm. is pretty interesting. Wow. Uh, now, his works have been referred to as bagel shop jazz. Uh, due to the police having something of an aggressive beatnik patrol, like they'd go from oh, club yeah. to club of trying to drag beatniks out, uh, this bagel shop would be forced to close its doors in 1960. Uh, this this is a time when uh, segregation was still the law in a lot of America, sure. and sure. homosexuality was illegal in a lot of places, so yeah, for sure. there were a lot of reasons to drag people out, but I had no idea, Chris, that one of my favorite breakfast foods was a counterculture signal. That's incredible. An so. icon. I, really, I didn't realize I was bucking <laughs> the system, so that's nice. <laughs> Every breakfast we're bucking the system. Uh, another spot is the uh, City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco. This was founded by poet Loris Ferlinghetti. Mm -hmm. Ferlinghetti? Yeah, sure. Who uh, just turned 100 years old last month, so wow. happy birthday, Lawrence. Um, now, City Lights came to be in 1953 as an independent bookstore and publisher. They specialized in world literature, the arts, and progressive politics. After publishing poet Allen Ginsberg's Howl and Other Poems, this was 1956, both the store and the publishing arm would be put on trial on obscenity charges. Now, those charges would be dropped. And City Lights was designated a San Francisco landmark in 2001, and uh, you can even visit it to this very That's day. Right, yeah. Now, this was it was viewed as a hub for the San Francisco Renaissance, which itself was initially designated for its avant-garde poetry activity, but soon broadened to include all forms of art, performance, written, and even that uh, little underground hubbub in comics uh, in the late 60s we discussed. That's right. They got involved in there, too. They had, they had to transform over the years, but... 
pretty good bookstore, I gotta say. Uh, although it is more, it is more of a historic site than it is a useful place sure. you might actually buy a book. But anyway, <laughs> uh, broad look at some other influences to beat culture. We have recreational drug use. Uh, people were influenced to experiment in drugs due to many respected beat writers claiming that their drug experiences enhanced their creativity, insight, and productivity. Uh, Allen Ginsberg especially was very public about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, romantic poetry would influence several of the no- notable beat pioneers, a couple of whom we talked about early on in this episode. Some early American authors and thinkers, or thinkerers, uh, also uh, <laughs> contributed to this. Walt Whitman, who lived from May 31st, 1819, to March 26, 1892, uh, especially was part was influential here. Uh, Whitman would refer to as America's first poet of democracy, which reflected his ability to write in a singularly American character. Whitman's friend Mary Smith Whitehall Costello would say, you cannot really understand America without Walt Whitman. He's definitely, I'd say, defined what we, a lot of what we consider as bucolic America comes from sure. Walt Whitman. Uh, literary critic Harold Bloom would write in his introduction into the uh, 150th anniversary of Whitman's Leaves of Grass, if you are American, then Walt Whitman is your imaginative father and mother, even if, like myself, you have never composed a line of verse. And we could probably research and talk Whitman for days, but we will move it right along. Yeah, because I'm sure there's uh, probably a show that is doing that. There and, should uh, be, I'll tell you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. Uh, another influence on the on the beat generation is French French surrealism. Now, surrealism is an artistic movement. Uh, would, it would begin in the 1920s, though the term was coined in 1918 by the French poet Guillaume Apollinaire. I would say Guillaume Apollinaire. Guillaume, yeah, like Benson. Yes, Guillaume Apollinaire. Now, surrealism is yet another rabbit hole we could lose ourselves in. Um, That actually might be better served for us to do, to explore when we discuss a different book. Possibly, yeah, and if, if you're not familiar with the term, you just think about that painting with the melting clocks. That Salvador is Dali, Man Ray, yes. there are a lot of guys. Uh, Max Ernst. Max yeah. Ernst was another one, yeah. Uh, another thing, modernism. Modernism is a philosophical movement of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, which is often viewed as something of an extension of romanticism and a counter to the Industrial Revolution. It's another very deep and fascinating subject, which uh, I think we would do a disservice to try to cram it in here. We so, definitely, uh, although... I would like to say that in some ways, comics are a modern, an expression of modernism. I can, I can see that. Because they that. grow, they, they kind of exist because of the uh, print industry in a way. But anyway, mm-hmm. that, that's a, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll maybe talk about that another time. I can't we'll imagine to, when, yeah. I, maybe an underground comic will help us I was going to say, if that. anybody out there has any, uh, has any good comics that would uh, facilitate these discussions, definitely let us know. <laughs> let us know. Uh, now, Allen Ginsberg, a beat pioneer who we've mentioned a few times already, he would write a definition of the beat generation. Now, this appeared in Friction One that had an, a winter 1982 cover day. We're assuming that's a magazine or a journal. Uh, and in it, he would characterize the effects of the beat generation, which included, and these are in his own words, general liberation, sexual revolution or liberation, gay liberation, black liberation, women's liberation too. Also liberation from the word liberation of the word from censorship. Also decriminalization of some of the laws against marijuana and other drugs. The evolution of rhythm and blues into rock and roll and rock and roll into high art form, as evidenced by the Beatles, Bob Dylan, and other popular musicians who were influenced in the nineteen sixties by the writings of the beat generation poets and writers. 
the spread of ecological consciousness, which is emphasized by Gary Snyder, opposition to the military-industrial machine civilization, as emphasized in the works of Burroughs, Hunky, Ginsburg, and Kerouac. Also, attention to what Kerouac called, after Spengler, second religiousness developing within an advanced civilization. Also, respect for land and indigenous peoples proclaimed by Kerouac in his slogan from On the Road, uh, quote, the earth is an Indian, end quote. Mm. Ginsburg closes with another Kerouac quote on which he feels is the very essence of the beat generation. It goes, everything belongs to me because I am poor. Mm-hmm. Pretty deep stuff. I will say, though, uh, Chris, poetry is one of these things, um, and, and this might anger people, it's one of the easiest things to write because so many things fit into the parameters of poetry. It, it's very broad, yeah, and, uh, it, and being an expressionistic type of a thing uh, onto itself, I, I mean, you don't have to worry about things like a narrative. You don't have to worry about things like uh, making sense in some right. situations. Uh, yeah. you know, all these things, meter, rhyme. Uh, sure. Uh, you know, exactly, you know, syntax. However, uh, when poetry is profound, it can be really striking. It can really stop and it lasts. your tracks. It sticks with you, yeah, uh, for sure. You know, so it's it's definitely, it's it's what, probably one of the most uh, oft-used, but... Uh, least mastered? Least, least mastered. Uh, yeah. You are, you are a, a master of words yourself, because, <laughs> you, boy, you, you found a good way to put it. But anyway, um, that ends our discussion of the Beat Generation and Street Poet Ray, and number one. we can see one. how the two kind of cross—you uh, can see how Ray is— Influenced oh, at least is... at least on a on a surface level by by the beat generation and uh, trying to you know the the ecological bent the uh, political bent the it's a lot of this seems to be evoking from the beat generation. Oh, it's which... it's a total it's a total outgrowth from yeah. that, you know uh, the idea of just standing on the street telling your you know telling your Rap poems yeah. your poems of truth or whatever uh, you know if you wanted to really really link it to. Uh, Deep history, I guess you could talk about guys like Aristotle, uh, sure. who did a lot of the same kind of thing. But this, to me, is is here's a guy who loved Howl by Allen Ginsberg and uh, <laughs> decided to go his own way and blended it with rap, apparently, I guess. Okay, sure, sure if you say so. <laughs> uh, but, of course, we want to know your thoughts. If you have some poetry you'd like to share, if you want to send in some audio rap haikus, that would be wonderful. Mm-hmm. Or, or if you're uh, Michael Redmond. If Please. you're Michael Redmond, or if you even own this book at all, uh, <laughs> please write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. We do have a Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash Reggie, where we, if you like what we do, you support us. You get a free enamel pin and three exclusive shows a month. Uh, two of them are... We talk off the cuff about comics things, and then one of them is Comic Cosmic Treadmill After Dark, which can get a little bit saucy. Indeed. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic history. You can find us on Instagram at cosmic And that's the same at on Twitter. That's at cosmic I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You can pop over for our weekly writings on DC Comics. These are current DC Comics over at weirdsciencedccomics.com. You can read our words and hear our voices. And uh, you can check out Chris's daily postings at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, which she's been tracking Action Comics weekly now. Now for several weeks, one issue per week, mm-hmm. breaking down the stories within. And at the end of the week, is it Fridays you do the vote or Saturday? Thursday. 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 One of those days, you go <laughs> over, you vote for week. your favorite uh, story of the week. I'm telling you, folks, this is going to be a repository 
to of information to uh, be resourced for years to come at chrisinfiniteearths.com. And our site is uh, chrisandreggie.com, where you can find the archives. It's the best place to listen to our old shows in order. Uh, Chris has gathered a lot of them into batches to, that are mm-hmm. sensible to, to listen to them uh, together. Uh, and uh, we're going to do our best to put some kind of semblance from this comic uh, in there. Uh, it's it's also, as a prestige, it's also hard to reproduce, but I think we can uh, dig yeah. up a couple of images from it. So com is the place to go. Yeah, and while you're over there, you can go uh, to the banner, the 80stees.com banner, and get yourself uh, some new gear from, uh, for, for, for your summer. You can uh, strap a T-shirt on and uh, be good, and uh, it'll, you'll be all protected for when you stand on the corner and rant at people. <laughs> well, that depends on what T-shirt you're wearing, but uh, yeah, <laughs> that's up to you, so you can check that out if you like it. But uh, I think that's all we got from this week. Chris, got anything else for him? That'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill and on the street. Word up. When I got forced to listen to the teacher and the lesson, classes is session so you can stop guessing if this is a gift or a written down memo. See, I am a professional. This is not a demo. In fact, call it a lecture, a visual picture, sort of a poetic and rhythm like mixture. Listen, I'm not dissing, but there's something that you're missing. Maybe you should touch reality. Stop wishing for beats with plenty bass and lyrics that Meaning doesn't manifest, put it to rest. I am a poet. You try to show it, yet blow it. It takes concentration for fresh communication, observation. That is to see without speaking. Take off your coat, take notes. I am teaching the class, or rather school, because you need schooling. I am not a king or queen, I'm not ruling. This is an introduction to poetry, a small dedication to those that might know of me, they might know of you. And maybe you can, but one thing's for sure, neither one of y'all can hang. Cause you I'm like a Say something now.